Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation and often the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast, Theo Bidler. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring the song, while the other host has no idea what song will be the focus until we hit play. Theo, you've had quite a, uh, a saga with your car tonight. So we're, we're starting a little late. Um, and luckily, I chose something rather uplifting. Good. You. I think well, you know what? Also, not to, not to interrupt you, but uh, there's only really one way to start a podcast. And that is cracking open. Oh, you got one too? I got one too. I got another Sierra Nevada uh, here. Cracking up Sierra Nevada. In Chico, you know, California. It's past Labor Day, so I need to finish off these summer breaks. So <laughs> while they are delicious, I will be retiring them for a, a more fall-like Sierra Nevada soon enough. Yeah, the Dankful is coming soon. Mm. Uh, oh, I fucking love the Dankful. Oh, uh, Sierra Nevada Oktoberfest is out right now. I got to pick up some of that. We have work to do. We have work to do. We have work to and do. And we have, we have uh, a song to cover tonight. Oh, we do. I'm very excited about this. Um, again, it's uplifting. Good. Um, and I mean, that's all I have to say about it. And now you can hear what it is. I thought I knew it. Uh, oh, yeah. This is like definition of uplifting. <laughs> right? This is what I thought it was, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I knew this was like a full intro. Pretty epic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Getting jazzed already. <laughs> I didn't even think about it being uplifting until you told me the car story. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the name of the song? Uh, I don't. Uh, it'll come to me. Do you know who composed the song? The artist? No. Okay. If I, if I had a we guess. We must talk it. about. If you had a gun to my head, I would probably say like Alan Parsons or something, but I, I don't <laughs> That's know. That's actually a pretty good guess. Uh, this is Chariots of Fire. Oh, yeah. Duh. A 1981 instrumental song by Greek composer <clears throat> Vangelis. Okay, I was not going to get that. Yeah. I do know it was Chariots of Fire, but uh, <laughs> definitely not going to get the composer. Um, it was not originally released under that name. Oh. It was initially called simply Titles hmm. on the soundtrack for the film Chariots of Fire. Oh, okay. I, I thought you were going to say he entitled it Titles knowing <laughs> that a movie would eventually use it. He should have. Um, in fact, the version I just played, it was just called Titles. Hmm. Um, but there were many other versions called Chariots of Fire. 
Um, are you familiar with the movie Chariots of Fire? You know, I, I am, but I actually don't know that I've ever seen it. I, I know of it. Um, I've seen clips of it. Yeah. But I don't think I've ever watched it all the way through. I'm not sure I've seen the whole thing either. Um, I feel like it was on from time to time on cable when I was a kid and I saw some right. parts. And obviously I've seen the I've seen the main sequence with this song. Yeah. Uh, I think those are my flashes, like seeing it on cable. I realized today what I should have done was what I did with Car Wash, where I watched the whole movie before the podcast. But what yeah. are you gonna do? You but know. you know, you got you have a job and uh and, and a family. Well, the film, Chariots of Fire. Uh, is a 1981 British historical sports drama film directed by Hugh Hudson, who directed a bunch of artsy stuff that I'm not familiar with that were like film festivals and stuff, plus some Tarzan movie. Uh, this was by far his biggest hit. Uh, oh, yeah. And one notable thing I didn't want to forget because I am a huge fan is uh, this is Kenneth Branagh's first ever on-screen role. He was uh, in a minor role, but it was still a big deal. I, th- I think he has like one line. The film, I think in itself is kind of bizarre to be a box office hit as it was. Um, this is the official synopsis, and it, it is based on a true story. Uh, in the class-obsessed and religiously divided United Kingdom of the early 1920s, two determined young runners trained for the 1924 Paris Olympics Eric Liddell, a devout Christian born to Scottish missionaries in China, sees running as part of his worship of God's glory and refuses to train or compete on the Sabbath. Harold Abrahams overcomes anti-Semitism and class bias, but neglects his beloved sweetheart, Sybil, in his single-minded quest. You know, if I didn't know the movie and didn't know that it was a uh, a film that you must watch if you are trying to watch all the you know, greatest films of our of our generation. Mm. Uh, that synopsis would not make me want to watch that, it. That's kind of what I was not thinking. Lie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Although I was thinking about it, I have a couple friends that love running, and I could see them getting like real jazzed about yeah. what you just read. Yeah, there. I could I could see. It's a different breed, you know? Told you uh, when you were here, the uh, we're making our way through the IMDb top 100 movies. I don't know if mm. it's on there. I don't know if I've, I haven't come across it yet. But we are going to watch the opening scene of the film. The oh, titles, as you would say, so we can, you know, kind of uh, get in the mood here, get in the spirit. So we're kind of watching the the music video early on. So there is a music will. video. Um, oh, but it's this interspliced with him like playing piano. It's not. not we're probably not going to watch it. I love eighty cinema. I don't know if it's like the way it's filmed, if it's just old film that like the lighting. You just you know it's from the eighties. Yeah, captivating. Oh, there it is. Music's coming. Now we got the boys running on the beach. This is what I remember. A bunch of brown-haired, brown-eyed boys. (laughs) A couple gingers back there. Yeah, you know. Oh, this guy's loving it. He's getting getting mud in his face. I will say the the attention span of young TikTokers in 2022, uh, this opening scene is going on a little long, not going to lie. Yeah, it might be a little <laughs> tough for them. This song just sounds like slow motion mm-hmm. to me. I mean, this isn't even in that slow motion. I guess slow it down a little bit. But this song just like I picture slow motion <laughs> when oh, yeah. I hear it. I don't think I remember the song being so synthy. 
it is obviously, and we're going to get into a little bit of that uh, of the the synth aspects of it. It's got those uh, the drum machine on it too. Oh yeah, kind of the same drum beat as uh, "Don't Come Around Here No More" by Tom Petty. <laughs> I could see that. Kind of want to watch the movie now. Now that I've, I know, right? I feel I'm like I should invested. have. There we go. Vangelis Papathanananosis. You know, say his last name. Is it St. Andrews? I, think so. I don't know. Looks like the Carlton Hotel. I've, to me. Uh, I've been here. Chariot to Fire film locations. Let's see. Yeah. And they just named it the Carlton Hotel. That is uh, that is on the golf course of famous uh, St. Andrews. First golf course in the world, I believe. Oh, wow. Well, just wanted to set yeah, the Yeah, I'm, I'm pumped. You know, that was the song's introduction to the world. Um, it's taken on many lives since then. Uh, so we'll get back to the movie in a bit. But we're going to start with our man, Vangelis. Yeah, please, uh, please pronounce his last name. He was born Evangelos Odysseus Papa Denasio. Mm. Love that. And I checked, I checked with a Greek source oh, on, good. The, on the pronunciation, so I didn't butcher it. He was born in Agria, Greece, uh, but raised in Athens. Vangelis, uh, his stage name, means good messenger hmm. in Greek. His father. Odysseus, which is just amazing that his dad's name was Odysseus. Great name. I mean, strong uh, names in this family. Strong yeah. Greek name. Yes. Uh, he was in real estate and was also an amateur sprinter. Okay. Wink, wink. Okay. I feel like if you're, if you live in the, the birthplace of the Olympics, the running in, mm -hmm. in the water there, you know? Absolutely. And like lifting rocks and stuff. Yep. Yeah, that too. Yeah. Uh, Vangelis described his father as a great lover of music and his mother. I thought you were going to end right there. <laughs> as a great lover. Yeah. You paused for like a millisecond and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised. He's Greek. Um, I guess that's a, that's a thing. I don't know. Uh, his mother, Fotini, was a trained soprano vocalist. Mm. And... Vangelis naturally developed an interest in music as a toddler, and he was composing on the family piano and experimenting with sounds at age four. He would place nails and kitchen pans. He would he would get kitchen pans and put uh, nails inside of it and try to interfere with the radio. Oh, wow. Uh, and when he was six, his parents enrolled him for music lessons, but he said that his attempts to study failed as he preferred to develop his own technique. And he never went to music school, and which he considers himself lucky for, so that he it wouldn't impede his creativity. Yeah. And he actually never learned to read or write music. Wow. He instead played from memory. And I love this quotation from him. He said, when the teachers asked me to play something, I would pretend that I was reading it and play from memory. I didn't fool them, but I also didn't care. <laughs> Hot damn, love it. <laughs> He did like traditional Greek music in his childhood, but at age 12, he developed an interest in jazz and rock via some of his schoolmates. And he acquired his first Hammond organ at age 18 and started a progressive psychedelic rock band called Four Minks. Fuck yeah. Wait, so he was born when? Sorry. He was born in 43. Okay. So he started that band. Uh, and then shortly after school, 
He scored the Greek film called My Brother, the Traffic Policeman. Classic. The IMDb top 100 list as well, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There is a military coup in Greece, Hmm. and it, uh, for a while there, turned Greece into a right-wing dictatorship. And Vangelis fled the country in result, and he settled in Paris and got together with some other Greek expats who had fled to form another prog rock band called Aphrodite's Child. Yeah. They had a minor hit in Europe called Rain and Tears. You better be sending me that link. And I'm sending you that now. (laughs) Uh, Is this, uh, this him? Yeah, it's him. Wow, not what I was expecting, to be honest with you. A little more hairier than I expected. He kind of has a uh, Harry Nilsson bed going on. I was just thinking, like, the Greek in Paris in the 60s. I guess I was, like, really romanticizing the vibe here. <laughs> Singing bass player, we love to see it. Kind of a jam. Yeah, I'm kind of into it. Yeah, I like it. Guy's got a great voice. Yeah. So this became a, a big hit in Italy, and the band was huge there. Wow, okay. Aphrodite's Child in 1972 released an album titled 666, and it is widely regarded as a seminal album in the prog rock genre. Hmm. And has I mean, way more views. Is prog rock. Prog rock's not big during this time, right? Early. It's like the beginnings of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're. Uh, oh, this video is giving me a seizure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I like that fit in the video. Yeah, the right. Cuff jean. <laughs> the vest, the beads. I'm very into this already. Yeah, so this whole album has a, a pretty big cult following. I want to mention that uh, we talk a lot about 90s bands on this podcast and there's a handful of 90s bands that don't have YouTube channels but Aphrodite's Child has a YouTube channel hell yeah and they have a lot of subscribers god damn dude then it cuts in oh and it's hell yeah here we great. go oh man into this yeah this song is a jam they're really having fun in the video too this is like a proggy Zeppelin. Yeah, I can see that for sure. This is great. Cool band. Yeah, I'm going to come back to this one. Yeah. Um, so then in the 70s, uh, he spent time scoring some nature documentaries while living in Paris. And then he moved to London to build his own recording studio and recorded several studio albums for RCA Records. <laughs> From 79 to 86, Vangelis played in a duo with John Anderson, not the country singer, (laughs) but the lead singer of progressive rock band Yes. Oh. And they were called John and Vangelis. Hmm. Not Uh, not as creative as the last couple names. Right. They released several albums throughout those years, and here they are performing on Top of the Pops in 1982. Um... 
I'm not as into this stuff. No, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, I'm not here for this. It's just like, I don't know. I was thinking when I was watching, I was like, these guys are both very talented. This is pretty boring. The crowd is like swaying with their hands up. And, uh, you know, you can just tell, even if it was a mute, I'd be like, this is not something I want to do. I'm sure they had some other weirder proggy stuff, but, you know, this is what I found of them performing. And it's top of the pops. I had to watch it. It's not good. Yeah. So that's John and Vangelis. Um, also during this time, uh, Vangelis turned down an opportunity to join Yes, mm. who was, you know, at the top of their game at the time. Yeah. Because he wanted to focus on composing. And good thing he did. Mm-hmm. Because in 1980, Carl Sagan came calling. What? Pale yeah. Blue Dot Carl Sagan? Yeah, you've seen Cosmos, right? Yeah. Well, the music in Cosmos is Vangelis. Wow. Uh, and it's actually some pieces that he had already he'd already made. Uh, he didn't make any new music for the show. Okay. But here is the intro to Cosmos. Um, the theme that is a Vangelis song. It's called oh. Heaven and Hell, Third Movement. Oh, love this. Yeah, pretty cool. So for our, our listeners out there who uh, maybe not don't know Carl Sagan, there's a great YouTube video where they use this song and then Carl Sagan's epic speech about the pale blue dot over top of it. And uh, I implore you to uh, get very high one night all it is and, <laughs> and watch that. Was yeah. Or ever will be. Definitely right of the cosmos. This is up there with like the, the master's music. Like you hear it. And you're like, yeah, totally. Take you, take you right there. Yeah, a faint sensation. That as if a program, Cosmos, on PBS was massive. It was huge. Blew people's minds. Shortly after that, Vangelis was approached to score the film Chariots of Fire. Now that I know those two songs are the same person, you can you, you can mm-hmm. tell. Absolutely. It would have been very same uh, similar time period too, I guess. Yeah, just uh, uh, the stuff that Cosmos used was from the late 70s and then Chariot's Fire was 81 um, which explains why there's a little more uh, synthesized instrumentation in the latter as I read in Stereo Gum he was an unconventional choice for this film Uh, one because electronic film scores were still pretty new uh, and they seem to imply a sort of futurism that's usually when they were used but yeah like horror movies I was thinking like John Carpenter movies, but there's nothing futuristic about Chariots Fire. Quite the contrary, because it takes place in the 20s. Oh, it's futuristic if you live. Yeah, in the I guess that's true. Of course, they didn't know uh, what movies were, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. wasn't weird all around. David Putnam was one of the uh, producers. He's uh, an illustrious producer, all kinds of famous movies. Um, he had actually used Vangelis's music in his 1978 movie Midnight Express. Huh. Which, uh, fun fact, the Oscar for the score of that film was won by Giorgio Moroder, who's another uh, synth music pioneer. Yeah. Uh, And the director of the movie, Hugh Hudson, had worked with Vangelis on some documentaries and commercials. Uh, And Vangelis liked the idea of composing something that uh, he could pay tribute to his father, Hmm. who was a sprinter. And he said, my father is a runner, and this is an anthem to him. Which is beautiful. I love that. Yeah. Um, this was a departure from 
typical period films at the time, uh, you know, those usually had like orchestral arrangements. It was music that was tied to the period. You know, now like we see like Baz Luhrmann movies where the music is from all over the place. Right. Uh, but at the time, it was pretty controversial to have music that wasn't part of the period. I know. Yeah. Vangelis had selected another song uh, to use that he had already composed in 1977. And the song was called L'Enfant. This was the original selection for the title sequence. Man, it's already got like a yeah, it's way faster. driving beat. Yeah. Yeah, I can see it working. But I can uh, see it working. Knowing Chariots of Fire, it doesn't no, have it doesn't. It, like the grandiose I I think I think yeah, you're right. Like the slow beat makes it really epic and, and building. The, and the lead the lead part isn't as catchy in this. Um, no. This is more positive too and in, in, in like a very like on the it nose doesn't have way, that somber where... element to it. You just need like a little right, bit. Right, which I kind of yeah. like. Yeah. Um, they actually, uh, when they were filming the opening sequence with the runners, they were playing L'Enfant and not oh. titles slash Chariots of Fire. Uh, Once it gets into it, though, you have those uh, like horns in the back. It does get a little more kind of somber epicness I mean, to it. I mean, who knows how it would have done, but they had it on loudspeakers for the I'm runners. Getting, to I'm getting into too. So that we're watching them run to L'Enfant and then they put Chariots of Fire over the, over the titles. Um, Fun cinema fact for you cinephiles well, out there. What happened was uh, um, they thought this was all fine and good. And then Vangelis was working on some music and he made Chariots of Fire. And he was like, this is, this needs to the titles, quote, uh, mm. the song that we know. Uh, he said, this is it. This, this is it. So he hopped into his Rolls Royce. Wow. All right. So he's already got a little money. <laughs> yeah. And drove to a London restaurant where producer Putnam and his wife were dining. And he urged them to leave their dinner, come outside and yes, sit in his yes, car. Yes, yes, So they could listen to the song yes. in his car. And Putnam was I love convinced. crazy creatives. Yes. It's so great. L'Enfant still did make it into the film. Uh, there's a scene in the movie where the athletes reach Paris and into huh. the stadium and a brass band marches through the field and they play. By the way, I like the idea of like maybe they're at dinner. Maybe the the the, the movie is being mastered right now and uh, Vangelis is running through the streets with the theme song playing, has to get to dinner before they master the yeah. film and he must change the title. I, I would watch that. I would watch yeah. that. It's like a very meta Chariots of Fire seek prequel. Like a kind of a prequel sequel. Except Airport. it takes place in 1981. You know, I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the movie blew up, did so well. Uh, it won Best Picture at the 82 Academy Awards. Uh, it did huge numbers at the box office, was one of the biggest movies of the year. And Vangelis won best score for this for him and meanwhile the song had been popular from the film and Mm -hmm. it had entered some charts 
here and there. Once he won the Oscar, it shot up the charts. Mm. Where do you think it ended up? On the Hot 100? Yeah, on the U.S. Hot 100. I'll give some international numbers after this. Go 27. I'm going number fucking one. Wow! What? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Chariots of Fire hit number one. So it's being played on radio a lot. Yeah, it was being played on radio. It also hit number one on the adult contemporary chart. Well, yeah, I I could see that. Um, Even like a late night adult contemporary station. Like I I couldn't see it being played at like 1 p.m. But I could see like David Dye playing it on NPR at fucker or whatever. For sure. Yeah. XPN. That's what I was going with. I mean... I, great XPN shout out. Um, I I think the movie just got so massive and then he won the Oscar and the movie won Best Picture that it just got so popular that I, I didn't find much about this, but I think people were, some stations were playing it maybe late at night, maybe for fun. It was, it was a huge, hugely popular thing. And then people were probably calling in asking for Chariots of Fire. It's like, you got to play so it. So crazy. You got to play it. The- I should know this, but does the Hot 100 include purchases and plays? Uh, the Hot 100 is radio airplay. It's just radio, right? Okay, yeah. 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 So not, yeah, wow. Damn. Uh, Crazy. It is one of the longest climbs to number one in Billboard history. How many weeks? Well, the single debuted at number 94 on the Hot 100, uh, 12th of December, 1981. And what's funny is that when it entered, it was called Titles. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then seven weeks later, it was at 68. Okay. That was January 30th. Okay. But now it was listed as Chariots of Fire. Do you think if people were calling and saying, I want Chariots of Fire? Yeah, right. They issued another single to radio stations calling it Chariots of Fire. Um, I would think to make it easier for listeners and DJs to identify it, find it. Yeah. Brand it. According to All Music, the track title was listed as Chariots of Fire dash titles on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and then just Chariots of Fire on the Adult Contemporary chart. Okay. And I said it entered the chart 12th of December 1981. It hit number one mm-hmm. in May 1982. Wow. So even a couple months after the Oscars, it just kept climbing steadily, steadily, steadily. It was its Damn. 22nd week on the chart. Uh, and it was one at the time one of the longest climbs of all time. Um, and to date, remains the only piece by a Greek artist to top the U.S. charts. Yep. Really? Hmm. Yep. Um, the single spent 64 weeks on the Australian charts. Uh, in Japan, it was the best-selling single of 1981. And it hit number 12 in the U.K. Uh, the album, the soundtrack, hit number five. And spent 107 weeks on the album chart. Damn. Let me ask you this. It's a question you're not going to know off the top of your head, I imagine. But maybe someone can write in. Um, how many number ones have just been instrumental? I don't know. But I think this is one of the last ones. We'll get into that in a little I bit. Mean, uh, yeah. Right? It's not not often. Not often this happens. Perhaps some listeners will fill the mailbag. With that answer yeah um when the song hit number one where it was only 
number one for one week. It knocked out the seven-week reign of Joan Jett and the Blackhearts' I Love Rock and Roll. (laughs) I Love Rock and Roll got knocked out by Chariots of Fire. (laughs) (laughs) A weird time. A weird time. Yeah. Um, I do have the rest of the top ten here for you, if you're ready for it. Number two. Yes. Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder, Ebony and Ivory. Hmm. Joan Jett fell to number three that week. I love rock and roll. Uh, number four, Mr. Rick Springfield. Don't talk to strangers. Number five, Jay Giles Band, Freeze Frame. Hmm. Number six, potential for an episode. Oh. Tommy Two Tone, 8675309, Jenny. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> a, a contender, 100%. <laughs> um, number seven, uh, Go-Go's, We Got the Beat. Yeah, okay, Eight, so. Paul Davis, 65, Love Affair. I don't yeah. know if I know that song. It's, it's not really my thing. It no. seems like a holdover from the 70s. It's like a song that we'll cover... In like year seventeen of the podcast, we're like, there are no more fucking games. Like, There's the number five that no one's ever heard of from that one weekend you won. Remember that? Number nine, Charlene. I've never been to me. Charlene. You know it's a ballad. It's an '80s ballad. That's all I have to say about it. It's not really much to it. That's the thing. If it's like any time before we were born, it's always like there's a lot of blind spots. There's some blind spots. Although sometimes we've had 80s charts and we're like every song just banging. Like this is a crazy time. This was a week where things were off, clearly. Things were a little off. That's when Chariots of Fire fucking took off. This song, terrible. Number 10, we've got some 80s chart stalwarts. Hollow Notes. Did it in a minute. Oh. Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. yeah. Uh, they'll come back in a little bit. I mentioned that uh, Billboard piece that was published this year about this song. Um, it breaks down how unlikely instrumental number one songs are in the context of this song in particular. And that kind of speaks to what you were saying, uh, what you were yeah. asking about. And it says, Chariots of Fire was a rare Hot 100 number one in several respects. It was the first instrumental number one of the post-disco era, the previous one being Herb Alpert's 1979 song, Rise. And it would be the next to last one of the century alongside Jan Hammer's Miami Vice theme. (laughs) Oh, wow. It was, uh, as we said, the first and to date only Hot 100 topper by a Greek artist, though George Michael was a Londoner of Greek heritage. Um, and it's arguably the only number one that could be classified as new age. The closest anyone Mm. else has gotten were Enigma's top five singles in the nineties, which didn't top, but they they got in the top five. Got close. Uh, and also Enya had a number two. I don't want to know. This actually wasn't. Vangelis's first time hitting the top 100. Well, yeah, he doesn't afford that right. Rolls well, Royce or fucking. He had a solo song in 1987. And uh, not only could I not find this, but uh, another article that I had read said they couldn't figure it out. Uh, 
he had a documentary soundtrack instrumental called Opera Sauvage that peaked at number 42 in 1979. <laughs> I don't know why. Cool. Yeah. Um, so we're at the top of the charts, but we have some controversy. Vangelis was accused, accused of plagiarizing. Alan Parsons. Alan Parsons, no. <laughs> he was accused of plagiarizing Greek composer Stavros Logaritis. I was thinking that. Dude, we were talking earlier and I was like, this sounds just like that guy. <laughs> you have me for a second. There, you really, I couldn't remember that. Uh, I just sent you the song City of Violence that Stavros claimed that Vangelis stole from him. Oh, wow. Oh. I mean. <laughs> There's an argument to be made here, for sure. Sure. Uh, I mean... By the way, I was going to do a little spiel on New Age, but you know what? Just go listen to the uh, Enigma episode, and uh, you'll get the whole thing about what New Age is. (laughs) We don't need to explain it again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, if you're just here for the 90s hits, uh, yeah, we're we're going way deeper. Oh, absolutely. Welcome to New Age. Well, Vangelis won in court. Uh, persuading mm. the judge that he had no opportunity to hear this piece before he composed Chariots of Fire. Well, the weird head. Well, he, uh, Vangelis, uh, demonstrated to the judge's satisfaction that the key musical sequence described as, quote, the turn, which consisted of the four notes FGAG, uh, the only sequence where the judge had noted a clear similarity between the compositions was already common in music and had previously mm. been used by Vangelis in Wake Up by Aphrodite's Child which predated oh, wow. City of Violence. That's the thing. It's like the the that song you played is it's very similar but it, it doesn't have the the custom turn. So Right. I I could see it going both ways. Um well, he won the case. He's got an Oscar. And yeah, thank God. He lost that case. Fuck. <laughs> Yeah, that would suck. He would have lost a lot of money. (laughs) He had a Rolls Royce before that. Um, Not only did he win for best score, but the film won for best picture and also in two other categories. But Vangelis didn't attend because he was afraid of flying. Hmm. He later said he'd been out drinking in London during the Academy Awards. And he was woken up by a phone call telling him he won an Oscar. (laughs) Love it. That's so badass. Uh, Chariots of Fire won Best Picture, beating out Raiders of the Lost Ark. Wow. Interestingly enough. Well, the Academy loves oh, like, know, film films. Uh, it so. ended its theatrical run as the highest grossing foreign film ever at the time. At the time. It okay. was also potentially lucky that it was released after the heavily boycotted 1980 Moscow Olympics. And it mm. depicted the triumph of mostly Anglo Olympians. Mm. Well, yeah, mm. checks out. <laughs> um, in the context of of sports and sports music, uh, that same Billboard piece that was written by Brad Shoup, uh, I love what he had to say. A wonderful irony of American sports 
jingoistic during Olympic season, mostly provincial otherwise, is that so much of it has a European soundtrack. The English grandiosity of heavy action and we will rock you and we are the champions, Zombie Nation and Darude's hard trance chant-alongs, and the low country hip house that's still synonymous with jock jams. By contrast, Chariots of Fire is much less energetic. It's slow-mo triumphalism made for TV replays rather than in arena hype made a staple of highlights packages for decades afterward. And that's what I feel like we know it more yeah. at. Oh, I think so too. Like 100%. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, though. absolutely. And of course, because it hit number one, the stereo gun piece I was talking about was a Tom Brahan joint. The number ones, very helpful in this. Uh we don't know Tom Braham. We just love him. But he has a book coming out about the number ones. Everyone should go pre-order it. I already have. At this point, honestly, one of the reasons that I've ordered it is so that I would love to have an actual book that I do research in for the podcast. It just feels so official. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to buy the, uh, the, the Vangelis. <laughs> I mean, there's more, there's more in his story we're going to get into. So I'm oh, sure yeah. it's good if it exists. Um, Tom. At Steragum said, at this point, the song exists more as parody than actual song. <laughs> Kids seem to know it from birth. Gym teachers must be sick to death of it. <laughs> the oh, Olympics yeah. have adapted the song as a sort of unofficial anthem, a transcultural and language-free hymn to human achievement. And yet this was well, a song, and against all odds, a hit. Mm. And that just goes so well into the next thing I wanted to discuss is that this has been used in so many comedic everything sitcoms so many comedic films I could not I could not name you one but I know that I've seen oh well there's one in particular that there's so many of them that I like couldn't really choose that many to talk about but this one is one of the first ones I thought of myself because I just Why? remember it so vividly. Because we're the Griswolds. <laughs> National uh, Olympics yeah, vacation. Duh. See, there you go. The Griswolds exactly. arrive at Wally World. I don't know if this is one of the first, but it's just so iconic and around this, around the same time. How <laughs> was yeah. it? Oh yeah. I mean, just perfect. Great scene. <laughs> Great scene. And then they get there and it's closed and John Candy is tells them that it's they can't come in. It's even been used in sitcoms very recently, including Young Sheldon and Two Broke Girls. I'm sure it's been used in The Simpsons and all I think that I shit saw hundred times. I think I saw some there's so many that I like I I just pointed out some recent ones and like the first one. I mean that was basically oh, wow. all, right. all I could really all I could really uh include here. Um there is a scene in Mr. Mom, Michael Keaton. I love, love. Do you remember the, the song in that movie? I, don't, I, mean, I haven't seen it in years, but I, I, I watched that movie so many times. That's when he throws the race. I would love. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I would love to rewatch that. It's been a while. Back to Hall and Oates. You need mm-hmm. to check out this Hall and Oates video. It's amazing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what? How, how did this come? I about? don't know, but it's like. What three pairs of people that look like Hollow Notes running to the song? <laughs> I mean, this is great. And then uh, the two of them are actually in it. 
<laughs> and then there's like some other parodies of the film in here. Like, I, I don't know if they just thought it was funny or what. I have so many questions. I don't know. Oh, this is amazing. Yeah. It's pretty great. Uh, there are tons of covers of this song, you know, mostly uh, orchestral. John Williams, the Boston Pops, some pan flute guy. Wait, John Williams? Why? Why did John Williams? Come uh, I think he just. I think he just did it in uh, in, a, in a concert. Oh, okay. Uh, and there have been many vocal recordings of the song. Do, do we need uh, that? Well, turns out our buddy John Anderson from Yes wrote lyrics to the song. Oh. And yeah. called it Race to the End. And there are a bunch of versions of that. And you can hear it in this uh, 2012 Olympic Games opening ceremony. And I think you'll see a familiar face here. There's an orchestra. Someone's hitting the scent. Uh, Mr. Yep. Bean! Rowan Atkinson. I remember this. Mr. Bean. I remember this. Oh, this would have been the London Olympics, right? Yeah. And then it goes yeah. into the vocal version, and it that's um, oh, John yeah. Anderson from Yes singing lyrics to his friend's song. Huh. This part feels unnecessary. I don't think it needs vocals. It's kind of lame, to be no. honest. Yeah. I also just don't really care for his singing very much. Yeah, I mean, either. I wonder how Van feels about that. Van still alive? Uh, we'll get into that. Um, that means he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> he lives <Okay>. on. <laughs> In this podcast. Steve Jobs, Apple Inc.'s chairman, You've just seen some introduced of the first Macintosh, show you Macintosh computer. In to the song? All of the images you are about to, to see on the large screen. And I have the video. Can't wait. It can't be as good as uh, <laughs> Bill Gates dancing to the release of Windows, but... Oh, my God. What song was that? It's wild to watch him unveil this and then put a disc in. Wow. There it is. And as soon as the screen comes on, there, there's the synth. The, the ding, 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 I'm, ding, I'm ding, right there ding, for it. Hold up. Plugging it in. I mean, the song's it's perfect for perfect. this. Especially at that time where I feel like the song... I mean, I guess Chevy Chase would use it, but it wasn't. Cool comedy, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure in people's minds, it's still very much the number one hit from Terry Fire. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. Oh, Fuck yeah. It's pretty great. Okay, I'll talk about coffee. I'll tell everybody that our good friends at Dark Matter Coffee... In Chicago, Illinois, who are making intellectually amazing coffee. Uh, they are offering free shipping at darkmattercoffee.com. Any beans you want, any gear you want, they've got super cool merch. Uh, just go to their website, fill up your cart, and put in the coupon wanted a hit cast. That's one word. Wanted a hit cast. You get free shipping on whatever you want. Get those beans. They're amazing. They are ethically sourced and delicious that's our friends at dark matter coffee darkmattercoffee.com 
might be one of the first times ever where a song is stuck in my head and it's not like just fucking annoying. <laughs> oh, this one, you're just like going toward going toward the fridge, getting a beverage. Dun, 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 dun. Singing the yes version. There can only be one champion. <laughs> Well, I wanted to save one more thing about this song to the end. We have hit um, a milestone here on the pod. Have We're we? tw- 27 episodes in, and we have now covered two songs from Pure Moods. Oh, yes. This and Enigma, which we covered uh, last year. This is in the middle of the track list of the as-seen-on-TV New Age compilation from the 90s, Pure Moods. I still argue that Enigma and Pure Moods are synonymous with each other. Oh, absolutely. When you think of one, you think of the other. I had no idea this song was in Pure Moods. I think I remember it being in the infomercial when we watched it. I think it comes on like later in the infomercial because they're like, oh, we need to get them one more carrot. (laughs) Chariots of Fire. Well, it's a big carrot. The success of Chariots of Fire brought... Even more riches to our friend Vangelis. He's got 14 Rolls Royces now. <laughs> uh, he got many more offers to score films, but he didn't want to be a factory of film music. That's not all he wanted to do. Um, some other soundtracks that he produced uh, shortly after were uh, Antarctica okay. and the film Non Kayoku Monogatari. In 1983, which is one of the highest grossing movies in Japan's history. Japanese love this guy. Uh, They do. Uh, And uh, The Bounty in 1984. And then he declined an offer to score 2010, The Year We Make Contact, which was the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey. And he composed some ballets, some theater stage plays. And then he collaborated with director Ridley Scott to score the science fiction film Blade Runner. No shit. Kind of a yeah. big deal. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, critics wrote that he captured the isolation and melancholy of Harrison Ford's character, Rick Deckard, and his scores is a, as much a part of the dystopian environment as the decaying buildings and the ever-present rain. I mean, I feel like, oh, I, hear, I hear Blade Runner, like I hear the synthesizers. Yeah. Like that's right away. Wow. Um he was nominated for a BAFTA and a Golden Globe Award for that film. Though there was a disagreement. I don't know what it was, but it led to Vangelis withholding permission for the recordings to be released. So the studio hired musicians to release orchestral adaptations of the score, and that's what they sold. Whoa. And then 12 years later, in 1994, uh, his own work was released from the film but was considered incomplete because there were compositions that were not included. And then in 2007, a box set of the score was released to commemorate the film's 25th anniversary, and it contained all of the music, finally, for everyone to enjoy. Interesting. Uh, As you know, uh, Vangelis is afraid of flying. Right. He only performed one concert in the U.S., and that was 7th of November, 1986, at Royce Hall, at UCLA, and it featured a guest performance by John Anderson from Yes. Motherfucking! I don't can, know why he flew over here for that, and not the. Can't Oscars, to do but, anything. You know, apparently, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, John Anderson is there. He's like Vangelis. What are you doing? Hey, what are you up to right now? Uh, I'm just doing some laundry. Can I come over and sing? 
And do, you, do you want to come to America? I cannot. I cannot fly. Yeah. For me. <laughs> uh, Vangelis uh, released another five studio albums in the '90s and continued to release more music. Beyond that, uh, he did compose the music and design and direct the artistic Olympic flag relay portion of the closing ceremonies of the 2000 Summer Olympics in Sydney. Not sure if he was there. Fucking long flight, too. That's a long flight. Uh, No official recording of that composition exists. Whoa. (laughs) I guess nobody recorded it. Uh, But the composition... um, can be heard accompanying the 2004 Athens games. So he got that one too. He Back also hometown. he also created the official anthem for the 2002 FIFA World Cup. So he kind of got a little pigeonhole there for me. Yeah. Um but he still kind of had the space age thing going on. He in 2001 performed live and then released the choral symphony Mythidea, which was used by NASA as the theme for the Mars Odyssey mission. Cool. Which is very cool. For a musician as famous as him, very little is known about his life. That's why I want to read an autobiography or a biography. He rarely oh, gave I, interviews. I don't think they mean autobiography. He, well, I don't know. Maybe one exists. <laughs> I didn't look it up. I didn't find it. <laughs> um, he was never interested in the decadent lifestyle of being a famous musician. Right. But he uh, drove yeah, a Rolls Royce. Yeah, you know. He, uh, oh, I think he meant like the party. Yeah, party bad. aspect although he was drunk all night I, but it's different when you're european i don't like the decadence but i own the most decadent car hand built by british I people <laughs> own the most decadent car and blew off the oscars to get drunk in london uh i don't know well that's pretty lowbrow let's be honest. yeah i guess it is it's true. <laughs> um, my ass would be at the oscars <laughs> in a heartbeat drinking their booze yeah right fuck yeah uh he had very little interest in the music industry very little interest in stardom. Um, he said that success and creativity are not very compatible. The more successful you become, the more you become a product of something that generates money. Yeah, um, well, that's how it works. Yeah, so he tried to be as free and independent as possible. Um, his place of residence was not known. Uh, instead, of, instead of settling in one place or country, he just kind of traveled around. Um, he did buy a house right by the Acropolis, which he chose not to renovate. That's probably old as hell. Just yeah. Greek. <laughs> wow. Uh, he did not have children. Uh, and he said, I couldn't take care of a child in the way I think it should be taken care of. It's fair. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Some a lot, a lot of parents. That... Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we won't go there. He was a very private person, but according to many accounts, he was inordinately approachable, really nice and humorous. He enjoyed long, friendly gatherings, and he was fascinated by philosophy, science, physics, music, sound, space. Seemed like a cool guy. Yeah, big thinker. Yeah, big thinker, but loved to socialize. I dig it. You keep you keep talking in the past tense here. Yeah, uh, he died <laughs> um, May seventeenth, twenty twenty-two. Damn. Yeah, he was seventy-nine. He died in Paris. Um, he had several health issues over the years, and it is believed that he died of COVID-19 complications. Oh, shit. Uh, heart failure. Oh, man. Yep. Uh, he had a career in music spanning over 50 years, and he composed and performed more than 50 albums. Wow. And he's considered to be one of the most important figures in the history of electronic music and modern film music. 
Damn. That is Vangelis. Chariots Fire slash titles. That was great. Do we uh do, do we have any mailbag? We have a mailbag. Um I shortly after we released the Barbie Girl episode, I was having some drinks with my bud Alec, who also works music, works at a label. Um and he asked me if I knew about the viral aqua TikTok from last year. I guess we oh, missed we, one. We, oh, fuck, we missed one. We talked well, about I guess TikTok being a possible uh, thing I looked here. into this a little more after he mentioned this, and there are a number of viral TikTok videos of people like doing makeup to Barbie Girl. I guess that was the thing. Um, that. Ooh, big, that belch was brought to you by Sierra Nevada. Just wanted to let everybody know. <laughs> um, I'm going to send this TikTok your way. Hiya, Barbie. Who's that? Is that Barbie, Barbie Girl acoustic? It sounds terrible. On TikTok. It's kind of charming. I like it. Okay. It's charming. However, uh, <laughs> Rose Boy's got a lot deeper. Well, it, Clearly, it got way raspier. He sounds like whiskey and cocaine. Let's go party. And the girl, the woman, the lady. Uh, no, come on, Barbie. It, let's go party. It looks like she's gotten a lot of plastic surgery. <laughs> and if I remember, <laughs> you were saying that she didn't want to be Barbie in the music video because that was the antithesis of the meaning of the song. However, the tides have turned. Hey, we can't we can't be sure. She might just have a great esthetician. Yeah, um, but I see the irony. I do see the irony. Um. That's all I got. That's 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 everything on on Vangelis. That's everything in the mailbag for Barbie Girl. Great episode. Um, sounds like you have a little something to yeah, share. Yeah, you want to spend the last three minutes and thirty seconds with me watching this? <laughs> uh, we are about to end the episode by watching Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot. Can we can we speech. put this on the the end of the episode? The whole well, thing. Well, the music is Vangelis. He's not going to say us. He's dead. You know what? It's going to be a short episode. I might just put it in there. Whole thing. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it... Everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, Every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on the mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena.
think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. That's a wrap on this episode of You Wanted a Hit. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Good luck getting that song out of your head. Please remember to subscribe so you know when the next episode is out. And if you listen on Apple, write a review, but only if it's nice. Follow us on Twitter at YWAHpod and let us know what you think. Or tell us what we missed by sending us an email at ywahpod at gmail.com. And lastly, share with a friend if you had a good time. This podcast was researched, produced, recorded, and edited by me and Theo Bible. And our theme music is by Air Doctor. We'll see you next time.